Tonight is our last night in 2 Corinthians. Uh, for those of you that have only been in the church a year or two, you maybe have thought that Wednesday night was just Corinthians all the time, but because uh, we've been in this a long time. But uh, next week we're going to start a, a new study, kind of a different study. It's going to be called Uncharted Territory. We're going to look at books of the Bible that probably most Christians never read. So it's going to mean Ecclesiastes and the, the minor prophets and, and books in the New Testament like Philemon and Second and Third John and um, again books that you may not ever read unless you're one of those through the Bible in a year kind of people and I know there are some of you here but uh, we'll walk through each book a book a night and it won't just be a this is what the book's about but we'll really try to dig into it so you'll feel like you walk away knowing okay that's what that book of the Bible is about now I understand. So, tonight we're in 2 Corinthians 13. And so as we close this second letter to the Corinthians, remember one of the main purposes for the letter is Paul was getting ready to come visit the Corinthian church to collect funds for the relief of Christians in Jerusalem. He's talked about this in more detail earlier in the letter, but as he's closing out the letter, he wants to make sure they're ready. And he wants not just for them to be ready in terms of be ready to give, but be ready spiritually. Be ready because there are problems in this church that have gone unaddressed. And he knows that he needs to finally address them head on uh, and, and bring it to a verdict. Now, Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3 actually talks about this visit and says he was there for three months. And so it's interesting to note, as you read this last chapter, what Paul is saying, here's what you need to do to get ready for me, for my visit. What would you do if you knew that an apostle of Jesus was going to be in our church for the next three months? What would you do to get ready? Would you dress differently? Would you get to church on time, whereas now you might stroll in you know, during the middle of the second song and no big deal. Would you, would you have more, would you be more prayed up? Uh, what would you do differently, if anything? Well, so verse one, he says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what is he saying there? That, that phrase, that sentence, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's an actual quote from Deuteronomy 19.15. That was a, a feature of the law of Israel, which you see repeated throughout the Bible. It was a standard. You couldn't, you couldn't put someone to death for a crime unless more than one person could say, I saw them do it. I know this person did it. That was a prevention. Uh, I mean, they didn't have DNA evidence back then. They didn't have a lot of the things we have today. That prevented me from being mad at you, and so I made up a story that you killed someone or worshipped a foreign god or committed sorcery or some other, some other capital offense just so I could get rid of you. Um, Paul is mentioning that, and, and believe me, Bible scholars spend all kinds of time debating, well, what does he mean? Does he mean uh, he and Titus and Silas are going to be there? Or does, is he talking about the three visits I've made to Corinth? Is he talking about uh, the, these three different passages in 2 Corinthians that constitute three different warnings? Well, here's what I think. I think he's quoting that verse to say, when I come back, it's going to be judgment day. When I come back, the things we've been talking about, the things we talked about on my last visit, the things we've been 
sending letters back and forth about, we're finally going to settle it. And the people who have been out of line are going to face judgment. The judgment of God through me, God's apostle. So it's a warning. It is a dire warning. Verse 2, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present in my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. What does he mean by those who sinned before and all the others? Remember, there's been a conflict between Paul and the church in Corinth. Uh, we're not 100% sure what the conflict is about, but we know that he has made accusations of sin in the, in the members. There have been some who've resisted his authority. There have been some who've stood up and said, this man, Paul, is nothing we need to fear or worry about. He has no authority over us. And when he says all the others, I'm assuming he means the people who followed along in their, in their train. Because this happens, right? Have you ever been in a church where there was a movement within the church to, uh, to split, uh, to defy someone and, and cause disunity? That's what was going on in Corinth. He says, those who sin and all the others, I warn them that I'm not going to spare them. Let me just interject and say, I don't think there's a preacher alive today who gets to say things like this. Now, we're going to talk more about pastoral authority in just a moment, what that means. But this is, these are not words that a mere pastor gets to say. An apostle of the Lord is something different, right? There is something to being a pastor of a church. There is something to that position that God confers with a certain degree of authority. But it's not the degree that I can look at someone and say, I judge you in the name of the Lord. That, you know, for instance... Think about the story of Peter and Ananias and Sapphira, right? If you're not familiar with it, in, in early early part of Acts, when this uh, married couple in the early church, Christians, pretend to have given more to God than they actually did, for show. And Peter calls them out, and each of them drops dead. I do not ever expect for that to happen in my ministry, and I certainly hope it never happens in my ministry. I'm happy to say I've never wanted it to happen in my ministry, uh, but that's, that's, that gives you some illustration of the difference, right? I have high regard for the position of pastor. I'm glad I'm in that position. Hope I prove worthy of it, but it's not the same as an apostle of the Lord. An apostle, when an apostle speaks, he's speaking the words of God, right? That's Paul. That's Peter. That's the others who are called by God. Um, so let's continue on that road. Verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. You hear what he's saying? You, you mock me, you say, okay, is he really an apostle? Oh, you're going to find out, Paul says. You're going to find out that I'm an apostle. You're going to find out that God really is speaking through me. He says, he is weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. What does he mean by that? Think about... Jesus, obviously, God in human flesh. The Word, John 1 says, when the Word was with God, the Word was God, nothing was created without God. So here's Jesus, the most powerful being who ever lived, and yet to do the most amazing act he ever did, he did it through an act of weakness, not strength. He let himself be killed. He died. He, he, uh, he allowed himself to be 
beaten and tortured and killed. And that's how he accomplished his work. So he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. In other words, through weakness, he did something powerful. And that's the opposite of us. I was telling, uh, you know, we were having a discussion this week in my family of, you know, is there any way that it's, e I hate to digress in this, but I thought this was funny. Uh, Carrie and Kaylee were both saying, is there any way that, uh, the world isn't better for you men that, than it is for us. And we're like, okay, high heels, y'all get pregnant, we don't, no, I can't think of anything. Um, and I said, okay, there's one thing I can think of. When you're a young guy, when you're a young man, you always have to try to be tougher than you really are, right? And I can remember getting to middle age and finally looking around and going, I guess I don't need to do that anymore. Because there really is a lot of pressure when you're a man in your teens and 20s and 30s to Pretend to be tougher, to pretend to be stronger, to pretend to be more capable, because otherwise somebody's going to bully you, somebody's going to beat you up. And, and I say all that to say, Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus didn't walk around with his chest puffed out. Jesus didn't walk around blustering and bluffing and boasting and pretending to be more than he was. Jesus was content to appear to be weaker than he was because it was what brought us salvation. And that's amazing. And those of you who are men maybe perhaps know even more than those of you who are ladies how big a deal that is. Um, so Paul's point is, you look at us, you look at, at me and my ministry team, me and Titus and the others in my group, and you say, oh, they're weak. Why? Well, because Paul doesn't, he's not a dynamic speaker because he comes and he's gentle and meek in their midst. He's not impressive. I get the impression Paul probably wasn't a, uh, an impressive looking guy. Uh, oh, he's no big deal. And Paul says, yeah, but would you judge Jesus that way? Jesus who died on the cross? And yet he changed the world through that action of so-called weakness. He says, what you mistake as our weakness is actually us putting our power in him. Which is a lesson to all of us as Christians, that if you want to really be powerful in this world, it doesn't come through strutting and boasting. It comes through humility in Christ. So, so the first thing he's saying to them, uh, you know, if you want to get ready for me, he's saying, submit to my authority. That's the way I can sum those first four verses up. If you want to get ready, then get ready to submit to my authority. And again, that's not something that an ordinary pastor gets to say. Ordinary pastors, the way it ought to work, well, let me let's talk about it. When it comes to a relationship between a church and its leaders, its ordained, called leaders, there's two extremes. On the one hand, you have people who say, you know, these men are ordained by God, they're called by the Lord, therefore to submit to them is to obey God himself. And you can find scriptural support for that idea. It's obvious that God calls out certain people for positions of leadership in the church. It's obvious that, uh, that he intends for the church to take care of those people in certain ways to enable them to earn their living from the gospel, from the preaching of the gospel. Um, and, and so you can look at passages like that and say, okay, yeah, it's, it's wrong to criticize a man of God. And you do find that sort of attitude in certain churches. Churches that are, are plants, straight off the ground. It's very tempting. I've never done this. But if you plant a church and it becomes successful, it's, it's very tempting for the, the man who planted that church 
to become a, a, a sort of semi-god in the, in the midst of it. Uh, some, some old-time, some long-time pastorates are this way. It's very tempting if you're in a church for 20 or 30 years to get to where you run things unquestionably. Uh, not all long-time pastors are like that. You know, Dr. Harrington wasn't like that at all, but some are. A lot, some megachurches tend to be that way. They're, they're built that way, where everything, the power is centered on the pastor and a, and a few handpicked people. And, and to criticize them is to be cast out. That's the extreme. I mean, that's, that's an idolatry of the clergy, which is unbiblical. And it can produce terrible things. You know, that would work fine if the man at the center of that was pure of heart. But I don't know any of us who are completely pure of heart. And when you're, when you're in that situation and, and you, will, you refuse any criticism and you will not be held accountable, it's not long before you become a narcissist and you, start, you become something other than what the Lord wants you to be. So that's one extreme. On the other extreme is the mindset that says, okay, that man up there behind the pulpit is a sinner just like me, and so he needs to earn the right to lead. I'm not going to let him lead until I know his heart. And even then, I should hold him accountable. Again, that mindset is absolutely true. But when taken to an extreme, when taken to an extreme, it can become deadly. It becomes, I oppose the, the pastor of my church at every turn because otherwise he's going to get a big head. I, you know, I hear some people saying good things about our, our staff. Well, then I need to come in with some bad stuff because we don't want them get, thinking too highly of themselves. Now, it's true. The Bible teaches on several occasions, First Peter especially, the idea of the priesthood of all believers. And as I, I like to say, there's, there's, no, uh, there's nothing that I can pray for any more powerfully than you can. You have the same Holy Spirit I have, you have the same Bible in your hands as I have, and you have the same access to the Father as I have. I, I do have to shake my head sometimes when I go to, go to people and, and say, uh, hey, I'm praying for you, and they, they say things like, oh, well, now I know I'm going to be okay. I hope they're joking when they say that, because that's not the way it works. Um, at the same time, there's got to be a balance between those two extremes. Uh, there, there must be a respect for and a support of and an encouragement of the leaders God gives us. But at the same time, there's an understanding, yes, they are fellow sinners. Yes, they do need to be held accountable when we see them stumbling and hopefully in a loving, upbuilding way so that you can rescue their ministry rather than destroying it. So with all that said, Paul, we see all through 2 Corinthians, his preference is to lead with gentleness. He doesn't want to come down hard on them. He doesn't want to exert his apostolic authority over them. 2 Corinthians 10.1 that we read earlier is, is one of those verses that talks about that. And the problem with that is that could be misinterpreted as weakness. And sometimes, as we see in this chapter, sometimes the leader has to come on strong. Sometimes the leader has to call things out. And that's what Paul does here. So get ready, he says, I'm coming and be ready to submit to my authority. Then he goes on, verse five. 
Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So the second thing he says is, examine yourself. I can sum up, I think I can sum up the words we just read by basically saying, instead of spending so much time trying to find fault with me, you should be examining your own hearts. And isn't that a word for all of us? I mean, that, that, that accords really well with Jesus' statement of remove the plank from your own eye so you can see to remove the speck from your brothers, which if you ever thought Jesus didn't have a sense of humor, that, that is clever. That is, that is satire right there. But it works, doesn't it? Everybody who thinks their job is to find fault in others needs to turn that energy around upon themselves, and everyone would be better off if that were the case. As he says in verse 9, your restoration is what we're praying for. Restoration, what does he mean? He's talking about renewal. He's talking about revival in their hearts. He wants to see this church come back to the Lord. You know, for all the bad things that are going on in Corinth, you can tell there's a lot of potential there. There are people who are incredibly gifted, and you look at a church like that and you think, if they could just get their heart right, oh, what they could do. They're like a puppy with big feet, right? Boy, when they grow into those feet, look what they will be. So Paul says, examine yourself. And that's a word for all of us. Examine your own hearts. How do you do that? Because it's no, we're notoriously bad at it. Some of us are bad at it even in a physical sense. Have you ever noticed that some of us, I think mostly men, when we look in the mirror, we, we turn at a certain angle and suck in our stomach and, you know, just, we don't want to see the honest truth. We want to see what's best in us. Um, how do we examine ourselves? I think the first thing is we pray about it. We invite the Holy Spirit to, to, to expose in us what needs to be changed. Uh, we have, this is one reason, number two, why it's good to have Christian fellowship. Because remember, Christian fellowship is not the Christmas party once a year. It's not the Super Bowl party. It's not hanging around drinking punch out of styrofoam cups. Christian fellowship is when there is oneness within the body of Christ, when we know one another. And we know, Christian fe true Christian fellowship is when you know there's at least three or four people, if not more, in your church who know what's going on in your life and who aren't afraid to come and talk to you about what's going on in your life. And I dare say there's a lot of Christians that don't have that. And I dare say there's a lot of Christians that don't even think they need that. But man, what a gift it would be to know if I'm starting to stray and I become too prideful to see the fact that I'm straying, I know that this brother or this sister is going to come up and say, hey, I see this in you and you need to change. So that's another way we examine ourselves. We go to those godly friends and we just say, uh, here's, what, here's what's in my heart right now. Tell me something else you see that I'm not seeing. That takes a lot of courage. And it also takes 
the, the effort of, of building those kinds of friendships, but it's worth it. Uh, and then a third way to examine our hearts is to study God's word with a humble, expectant heart. Uh, I think probably every person in this room reads the Bible on a regular basis. You wouldn't be here if the Bible wasn't important to you. But remember, when you read the, the Word of God, and this is something I have to remind myself of, don't just read it as if you're fulfilling a chore. Ah, good, I got that chapter read. Now I can go on and you know do the crossword puzzle or, or watch the news or eat breakfast or whatever. But read it with a humble heart saying, Lord, I know there are things in me that need to change and an expectant heart saying, Lord, I know you're going to say something today that's going to change me in some way, so show me what it is. If you want to know how to have a more expectant heart, this is something that has worked for me. I started journaling a while back. And when I say journaling, I don't just mean keeping a diary, although there's, there's some use to that too. I mean, every day when you, when you open your Bible, you, you flip open in your notebook or on your computer screen and you type in the date and the time, and then you say, okay, before I'm done, I'm going to write down something I've learned today. And you don't stop reading until you found that thought, that verse, that phrase that sparks your heart, that strikes you. And it may not be something you've never heard before. It may be something you just hadn't thought of in a while. Or it may strike you in a new way. But to me, that's a good way of having an expectant heart is I know I'm ready for God to speak. And He knows it because I've got my fingers ready to write it down. Uh, and, the, and the good news about that is God's Word speaks when you have an expectant heart in ways you don't expect. Because when you go to the Bible looking for answers to your questions, you're often frustrated. But when you go to the Bible just saying, okay, speak, Lord, for your servant, it's listening. It's, some, it's often surprising the things God says. You, you aren't even thinking about that subject, but that's obviously what He wants you to hear. Now, let's close out the book, verses 11 through 14. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Can I go off on a little tangent there? For anybody who says that every part of Scripture must be taken literally, I haven't met any of them that follow that one. You know, that, that's just a proof that we need to read Scripture with discerning hearts and know that sometimes the literal meaning of a verse isn't necessarily what God means. Uh, a holy kiss or a kiss period doesn't mean the same thing today that it meant 2,000 years ago in, in Greece. And so, uh, you know, another way to say that is show affection to one another. Make sure the person you know knows that they are loved by you. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now you may wonder, well, so Paul was writing this letter to prepare for a trip to Corinth and to visit them. You may wonder how that trip turned out because there's no third book of Corinthians. But actually we know how it turned out. Thankfully, when Paul writes the book of Corinthians, most scholars believe he's writing from the church in Corinth, from the city of Corinth. And here's what he writes in Romans 15, 26 through 27. He says, For Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia is the region where Corinth is, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. 
For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in their material blessings. So Paul is saying, he's writing from Corinth and saying, my friends here have been generous to give like I asked them to. And he doesn't mention any troubles, any trials, any difficulties. And we know by now, if he was having difficulty, he would talk about it. So that's good news. That means the Corinthians responded well to this second letter. The conclusion, pray for your church. Pray for the leaders of your church. Pray that we, the leaders of this church, would be humble enough to lead gently, firmly, and with wisdom enough to know when to be firm and when to be gentle. Um, pray that the church would follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Pray that the church would love uh, their leaders enough to hold them accountable and encourage them at the same time. And constantly invite the Spirit of God to examine your life. I just want to close with this. Every Christian should learn Psalm 139, 23, and 24 and learn to pray it over their hearts. Psalm 139, 23, and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for your righteousness and your love. We're thankful, O oh Lord, that you show us what true leadership looks like and tr what true power is. And while we'll never live up to your standard on this earth, I pray that we would produce people who are continually growing closer to that ideal. Now, Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight and search our hearts and know us and try our anxious thoughts and see if there are any wicked ways in us and lead us in the way that is everlasting. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.